0: Hi and welcome to the Lucky 13th PIP Permaculture Podcast. This time around, PIP editor Robin Rosenfeld chats with Stuart Muir-Wilson, permaculturalist, architect, activist and grandson of permaculture co-originator Bill Mollison. Stuart shares stories from his unique childhood, working on his grandfather's farm, as well as his latest projects building tiny houses to stop homelessness, growing mushrooms with vulnerable youth, and aid projects overseas. We hope you enjoy this expansive and interesting conversation with a unique new voice in permaculture. Enjoy.
1: So welcome to the Pit Permaculture podcast. Our guest today has led a very interesting life and his journey into permaculture is quite unique. We recently named him finalist in our Pit Permi of the Year Awards And I'd like to welcome you, Stuart Muir-Wilson. Thanks for having a chat with us today.
2: Yeah, thanks for um, the opportunity for an interview. I really appreciate it. Yeah,
1: Yeah, well, you've got a very unique story, especially the way that you were introduced to permaculture and how it influenced your early life at a very young age. Can you tell us a bit about that and who introduced you to permaculture?
2: Yeah, definitely. My grandfather was Bill Mollison and he didn't come into my life till I was about eleven or twelve and that was highly influential around my growing up as a as a young boy. My my brothers Jack and Jerome it really formed the men or people we grew into. So it was really um, yeah, really formative and really influential those early years growing up on the farm around the around the trees and with the food forests. So did you so grow up? You
1: were, was he living on the farm,
2: or I yeah, mean, so were you living bought, there too? Or? He bought 17 acres in northwest Tasmania, yep. um, 20 minutes from where we lived, and we converted that from pasture into four four different types of food for us. Wow. We had 10,000 different types of trees and three dams and pigs, ducks, geese, the whole yep. whole nine years, and we could feed 35 people at the drop of a hat because the farm was so productive and run workshops so. Me and my younger brother Jack, I'd be sixteen, he'd be 14 one day, and we had ten wolfers each to work with and coordinate, so it really yeah, right. us into that position quite early of taking leadership and being very directive with decisions as well for large groups of adults and we'll just, yeah. so it was yeah something it was a bit very surreal and just doing you know incredible projects with grandpa um for us um like helping him write and publish his books and just doing mm. illustrations and he was always talking about interdimensional travel and it's just yeah. yeah very yeah incredible philosopher too and deep deep thinker mm. and just an avid writer like he could read I think twelve books a week, cover to cover and write an essay on each of them.
1: Wow.
2: It's just yeah, very, very hard working academic, yeah, it's just incredible. So he had a library of around 60,000 books, Mm. um, and that was catalogued by one of my friends, and he read every single one of them. So Mm. just a a wealth of information, and there wasn't much he didn't know about biology or psychology or environmental architecture um, through the 80s and 90s when it was emerging as a field. But he had an amazing... Mm poetic way of talking about um, the environment that inspired everybody around him to become part of the movement too. It was mm. a much deeper, more resonant way of talking about it than just gardening or environmental or organic gardening. It was a deep one that resonated with everybody at a much deeper level as well. Yeah, mm. you patterns that resonated between different ecosystems. So it was quite... You know, it's a completely unique type of genius I've encountered mm. um, for the way he saw things seamlessly coming together. And, yeah, it's just a lot to behold. And he really, yeah, admired Indigenous cultures and still still was a good listener at times. Mm. But you really had to, you know, he would grill you if you got a frack wrong. And okay. from a very young age when you don't, you haven't learnt much about facts, to get grilled by your grandfather and, <laughs> Like, he made me say nuclear about 15 times until I could say it right. I was just like, <laughs> like say it again, say it again. So he was very precise with his knowledge, yeah. but still have the vision and how to achieve it pragmatically. And, yeah, it was an incredible way of working with him as well.
1: So what was it like actually working with him? Like, how, how, did you just sort of go over there on weekends or after school or...?
2: Yeah, a bit of both, and I'm um, on holidays too. So yeah, up there on the holidays. So it was only just down the road from Mum and Dad's place, so I could go there quite easily. But we would, yeah, we would work outside, and I could employ all my friends. Like there was always work on the farm because there was always yeah. a lot to do because of the intensive style of agriculture. So yeah, you know, we could provide full time work when it was in full production for five people on seventeen acres, which is Unheard of in conventional agriculture. Yeah, and, it, yeah. and we brought back six or seven endangered species to be quite common from freshwater crayfish to black cockatoos, the white goshawk, wedge tailed eagle, all of those mm-hmm. came back to the farm over that 15 year period. We we're working really closely together. And then, yeah, on a day to day basis, he was quite like he liked to get up early and start work early. Um, and we will just go out planting trees for the day around the farm, or it'd be design work, or yeah, digging digging up the compost, or yeah, you know, finishing a pig, or so it'd be quite varied the jobs day to day,
1: yeah,
2: on the farm. But and we was, be
1: talking the whole time and
2: imparting yeah, yeah, his knowledge, definitely. And, and we'd always work to Carl off, which was quite epic pre Christian chance. I was quite,
1: yeah,
2: that's one, th- like I have. Have this vivid memory of us working in the rain. Always listening to Karl, Orl, <laughs> and he called it Trotsky after the Russian revolutionist. So that kind of gives you an insight to what kind of man he was. So yeah, it was, yeah just like doing things epically. So yeah. <laughs> and uh, then, then, then he just like kind of in his slow grow go cup of tea, and like that was his call for a break. Like cup yeah. of tea. Like he's just such a character, and had this infectious, very infectious, rich laugh too. So yeah. Well, yeah. he's
1: influenced so many people all over the world and he's spread the word of permaculture from just the concept to, you know, enthusing people from, yeah, every yeah, continent. Yeah, he's changed it. a
2: lot of people. Like, I still meet people who changed his life quite profoundly at a deep level from such a small um, impact or small contact with him as well. Mm.
1: He's
2: such a, a deep and rich character, but he was very, very committed to his vision, and he mm.
1: did
2: not suffer fools or ignorant people at all, like he yeah. was quite you know quite brutal in his way of shutting down people because mm. if they didn't get on board and save the planet for their own children, he was like, "Well, what good are you to to anyone if you just you know he's very very strong on holding people to account for their inactions too, and he wasn't mm. he, he didn't he wasn't soft about it too. So he was, could be very, very gentle with vulnerable people, but he could be very hard with CEOs and corporates who were committing the acts of evil in mm. industrial agriculture and he would have no tolerance for that as well. So, yeah, he definitely yeah, definitely didn't suffer fools at all. Yeah.
1: So I guess that must have really formed... Who you are today, growing up with that sort of level of expectation.
2: Yeah, and and I see a lot of those characters in him coming out in my character itself. Like sometimes I can be a little bit intolerant of people that should know better or you would expect to know better so I can get quite short and blunt and that's his character coming out in my character and it's just like wait a minute where's that coming from yeah. but then there can be other amazing insights into project I gained from that education too like linking seemingly disconnected fields together too so I applied mm. that in my work as well he was quite amazing at um, connecting together disconnected disciplines like engineering, geography, biology all mm. into the one system thinking approach so he did a lot of you know, financial and ethical planning as well. And that had a deep impact on the structure of my brain and how I learn and how I still operate today.
1: Yeah, Yeah. so after um, you left school, you did a Bachelor of Environmental Design followed by a Master of Architecture with honours. And in that project, that final honours project, you focused on a permaculture-based design in Tasmania. Um, Can you tell us what that was and...
2: Yeah, so it was getting Tasmania ready for peak oil um, because oil prices were already rising and improving urban density and urban agriculture as well. Um, So while looking after the marginalised and vulnerable in the society. So it was, um, yeah, a really good project to pitch to the Australian Institute of Architects for that project. And uh, it was amazing I had amazing role models for architects there as well. So Richard Burnham was an incredible one. And um, Carrie Vandenberg, she was another amazing um, humanistic architect that worked from a human grassroots level and vernacular architecture as well. So that deeply influenced how I integrate permaculture into architecture um, in that project as well. So it was incredible to learn from so many rich and diverse mm. perspectives. And it's incredible if we look at you know, architecture in that way of how it can really work together with urban planning and permaculture um, mm. to celebrate the best of our human values and not, not um, be a servant to greed or, or to wealth as well, but be a servant to our humanistic virtues.
1: Mm. So what was the actual project that you created or...? Design.
2: Um, yeah, so it was uh, mixed use. So it was um, urban density, urban density in housing apartments. So I was essentially converting unproductive car parks into productive urban space. Mm. So it was going on to an existing market space. So there was a market garden. In, uh, I think 40 apart, 40 sustainable mixed use apartments, commercial and community spaces on the ground floor, um, and then. Coming up with street and urban um, planning as well as urban gardening, um, putting a train through um, through the city or a tram through the city mm. to increase public amenity after fossil fuels run out. So I was coming up with, it wasn't um, a dystopian or utopian solution for peak oil, it was what I call it, or it's what's the Latin root of both of those is topia. Um, which is a realistic projection into the future. So it was as best as what I would come up with of, of that scenario. So I was looking, it was designing from a master planning scale, so from yep. the site of the city down to the size of the block, um, then the size of the apartment. So I did models for all those different scales as well. Mm-hmm. So I articulated that theme of um, ethics and permaculture across all of all of those scales as well. Mm. So, so, and I think it's yeah, quite fascinating to see what kind of design issues come up at different scales as well.
1: Mm. So what do you think the likelihood is, is of actually getting a design like that implemented on a large scale?
2: Well, it's quite funny because I know, know the property developer that's bought the block of land. So oh, really? Like, yeah, I can't say it because it's commercial incompetence, but um, I'm like, oh, how about you build my design? I did five years ago. <laughs> it seems to be going that way, and like, Yeah, it was was an interesting conversation. So I think...
1: It's all there ready to go. You could just do it. What's that, sorry? It's all there ready to go. Yeah, it's all
2: there ready to go. So I think the critical issue is is educating people on the importance of values Mm. uh, and how their values inform their decision-making because without the right values, you just, you know, it's kind of divergent outcomes and decision-making too. Mm. So that's... um, simple enough with permaculture because we need to be connected back to our food and then we all want to take care of our family and then, you know, we Mm. want to look after each other. So why doesn't our architecture or um, urban planning resonate with those values Mm. as well? And I think that's how I convince people. That's one way I do it. But the other way is getting a better, if they're a business, you know, a hardcore business person. I can convince them with the business outcomes because high mm. quality return, lower impact, better community output. You've got um, a better point of difference to other developers because the market's so swamped with this cheap, really subgrade housing. You mm. can create better quality housing, sell your apartments off, no dramas, um, and create a quality of life for people and the environment too. So you can have the best of both worlds. It doesn't have to be just cut costs and make maximum profit. You can still put a decent amount of money into the infrastructure, into, you know, whatever it is, solar panels or biogas or urban gardens and make Mm. a high profit on top of that because you've put more of a quality and boutique quality of life in there too. So I think it's... As much educating developers as it is educating architects. And I think mm. the Nightingale projects, which are an ethical model of that in Melbourne, are a great exemplar of that project of how an architecture co- client relationship can bring about best practice in sustainability. But where I see where I really want it to go is going from best practice to standard practice. So it really um, harnesses mm. these qualities. Yeah.
1: Yeah, well, let's hope that some developers can see beyond yeah. just making money.
2: <laughs> it's changing in a big way quite quickly oh, around that's good to know. where we are in Brunswick, in yeah. Melbourne, right now. So it's hopeful. There's a lot of hope, and mm. it's really been driven home by local government because it's not just planning approval, it's planning and housing affordability approval now. Mm. In it's financial year. Yeah. So that means it has to be, you know, you have to be able to low-income people have to be able to afford to live in the city they've lived in for generations. So that's quite exciting um, legislation property developers have to contend with as well. Mm. So, Yeah, so
1: it's actually in the law that they've got
2: to... Yeah, it's, it's in the planning law now too, yeah. and a lot of other planning contingencies in there for housing affordability. Mm. So it's, it's looking good. It's going the right way, and there's the right politicians, Greens politicians proving... Yeah, or putting really amazing legislation to state government to get going to the Planning Act. So that gives me a lot of hope for the future too. And the way, and with urban density increasing, it just intensifies those connections or community outcomes as well.
1: Mm. Yeah, Yeah, well, partly um, I'm jumping ahead a bit here, but with your um, role as the manager of Seedwell, you're working on a tiny house project at the moment. Can you tell us about that?
2: Yeah, definitely. It's one I've been doing for wanting to get running here for the last eighteen months and just started being built in the last few weeks. So it's quite exciting to be working on that with some really good good friends and some amazing support from Jesuit Social Services that supported me to work on it. And then we've got um a really good design we came up with collaboratively so we'll be work we'll be pitching it to the social housing market in Melbourne to address housing affordability and the homelessness crisis that's been going on here for the last two or three years mm. um, so what's for, the project
1: can you tell us um, what, how, what it is exactly
2: oh uh, it's just one tiny house at the start it's quite big for a tiny house it's three and a half meters in size so it's quite Quite ginormous. Yeah. Uh, and it's energy efficient. Yeah, energy efficient. Yeah, portable. It's yeah. going to yeah. weigh about three and a half tons at the end of it. So yeah. it's going to be quite, quite heavy. But it's to give people a quality of life. So double height space um, over the lounge room area. Then a beautiful mezzanine with a lounge up the top of it. And then it will have a fully self contained bathroom with a yeah, toilet, sink, and shower. Then also have a kitchenette and, yeah, lounge room too. So it'll be quite, you know, it'll be fully self-contained and it can um, plug into alleyways or or unused or disused land that can't be developed. Mm. So um, it's quite, has a lot of opportunity, but the finishes are um, plywood and upcycled timber for the furnishings as well. So, so it's quite them.
1: low cost to build, is it? Is that the uh, idea?
2: it's moderate. It's I wouldn't say it's low cost in terms of you can do. I've seen tiny houses look done for a thousand dollars, but they look like they've been done for a thousand dollars. So we're not sparing any expense because we want to give the people who get a, a quality of life mm. as well, because it could be potentially permanent housing for them too, not just temporary. Mm. So we're making it super well insulated um really good quality lighting like light timber double glazed window so it's got all of the ecological sticks on it
1: mm.
2: uh, and then down yeah downsizing as well so
1: so who quite, would who would this be for and how um, like is the idea to kind of build multiple versions of yeah, this
2: yeah yeah definitely so to kind of streamline this and build as many different versions as as we can so there's quite a a lot of tenders out there we can put in for, which are huge contracts, and then there we can sell to the private market for people who just bought a bush block to go onto their bush block while they suss it out for a year or two and do yeah. their holistic planning so there's quite a few different applications as well, and it can also be put onto properties for airbnbs
1: yeah.
2: that generate alternative income so we've had inquir- strong inquiries into it for all this, so we just trying to get this role model, this prototype up and running for this site so we know how it works in with local manufacturers so we can um, pump them out and create a social enterprise impact for this this centre here for um, seed well and the Emerging Eco Skills Centre where we are now.
1: So who's building it? Who who are the people that will be building it?
2: Oh, I've got, um, yeah, my friend Dre, he's kind of initiating the whole thing. so. Um, and then Skip, my friend, is the metal worker fabricator, so they're all, all welded in and cutting steel at the moment. And then um, we've got another guy, um, Ollie, he's helping us out with the panels and mm. he lives in a tiny house, so he's bringing that experience to it as well. Mm, yeah. And then the, the girls from Hammer Time, which is a female owning carpentry workshop, they're doing the fit-out and carpentry for it too. Oh, great. Is, So that's exercising that, that ethic because females only make up 2%, 2% or less of trade workforce. So it's giving um, them an opportunity to upskill as well. So I'm doing architecture or carpentry detail drawings for the girls from Hammer Time to build for the tiny houses into the future. So it's we have a big social impact uh, on the process and building of them as well to um, also vulnerable and marginalised, but the, the vision for the projects to get um, Kids that have experienced homelessness or poverty into the projects as well to get them reengaged with so communities. So they help build them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and upskill yeah. too. Yeah. So that's quite, um, a, yeah, a fun part of it as well. So we have all those um, important social impacts which underpin that those those key foundations of both permaculture ethics and uh, social justice.
1: Mm.
2: Yeah, really really exciting work to be on the. The frontier of, yeah, yeah,
1: it's,
2: and, and uh, each each of those groups bring a rich perspective or take on the design as well and awesome ideas. So it's working across across that as well, yeah.
1: And it's part of Seedwell, the project.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's kind of, it's on the same site, so Seedwell is its own program, and the tiny home is a is a different thing because that. So <laughs> yeah, it's quite a bit bigger and broader. Seedwell's yeah. focused more on the gardens and the permaculture and the, the exactly. ecological training. Yeah.
1: So can you tell us about Seedwell? So you're the manager of it and the program runs across two sites in St Kilda and Brunswick. Yep. And right. yeah, what do you, what does Seedwell do?
2: <laughs> what don't we do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah it's- Quite a lot. So we work with at-resort marginalized kids uh, and family violence survivors in St Kilda. So okay. that's great work. We do in ecological stewardship and um, animal therapy and things too. So that's quite a big site. Um, so, so what sort of age
1: are the kids you're working with?
2: Um, 16 to 25. Okay. So. Yeah, but they can be anywhere in that range at all. But I generally mostly work with the 16 to 18 year old kids yeah. that have gone through various stages of trauma.
1: Mm.
2: So it's um, connecting them back to the garden and the present moment through the soil and healing power of Mother Earth. So it's yeah. Quite, yeah, I, yeah, quite a, yeah, I don't work like a social worker down there, I work more like a spiritual healer or something. But <laughs> I just love working with the kids and channeling yeah. their energy into the garden and giving them a sense of self-esteem and really building up their value in themselves because mm. for them it's the first time they've had a positive role model in their life.
1: Yeah.
2: So it's building up their their resilience in themselves and their belief in themselves too. So it's quite amazing the changes we've seen over the program.
1: What sort of changes do you see? Have you seen in violence,
2: violence rates have dropped from. 25 to 30 acts of violence towards staff a month to, you know, three to five, which yes. is dramatic. And then also property damage, which happens in youth refuges on a daily basis. So, again, about 25 times a month it's dropped next to zero. Mm.
1: So
2: it's, and the rates of anxiety and depression have fallen in the kids too. So right. because they connect with the animals just like that. It's that unconditional love in mm. the animals. Just incredible to see the animals and kids together. Like it's a completely unique um, project. So it's, yeah, it's amazing. It just gives us a lot of hope for reform in the refuge space as well. Mm.
1: So, what's is, the setup down there? So, these people are living on site, are they?
2: Yeah, so we've got um, seven units for um, young people yeah. under 18. And then we've got seven units for um, seven family violence units as well, and then one overnight crisis accommodation unit that can be used for people sleeping rough that night. They can get it on short notice.
1: Yeah. So,
2: um, yeah. It's quite. It's quite a big program. So there's about 40 social workers working on site. A lot mm. of them do outreach, so seeing clients off off site. Uh, and then there's, yeah, quite a big program for everybody to be involved in and permaculture is on, um, one day of that five day program and then then for the weekends they go, um, they might go away or go to the sea aquarium or go to the beach or yeah, Mm. go to Apollo Bay. So they get a, a sense of normality and routine with it as well. And yeah it's a great education and supportive framework they 've got there, so it's mm. yeah, incredible they're incredible pioneers in that that space yeah
1: and what's what's the garden like what what are you what are you actually doing with them in the garden and um, with the animals
2: Oh we do a lot of things, so yeah animal care and animal animal therapy and aromatherapy too is a big part of what we want to start ramping up because we've got an aromatherapy garden oh, um, yeah. I do a lot of cultivation with the kids, so I teach them how to grow seeds and mushrooms, and which is just, yeah, don't get me started on that. I'm <laughs> <laughs> yeah. really, really passionate about mushrooms, yeah. Um, yeah. so it's really awesome to see see them grow. And then, you know, you tell the kids they're doing biology and science, and I just can't believe it because you know they've been doing it all along, and I didn't realise it was that simple. And mm. so it's great to see, yeah, the kids grow with the gardens as well. And it's just yeah, incredibly productive garden. We've got an amazing staff support system down there, an management, amazing management network. And so it's a, really, it's a really professional team working together with amazing volunteers that contribute
1: mm-hmm. quite a
2: lot of their time and skills and experience. So it's amazing to learn from all of those different perspectives and how that can help bring about ecological and social justice, which is the hard edge of it all really at the moment, mm. yeah.
1: Mm. And, um, uh, sorry, i have just come blank. Yeah, so the mash, and then that's in St Kilda. Is that similar sort of thing in Brunswick as well?
2: Um. So, yeah, in Brunswick we more of a, well, we call ourselves as an emerging eco-skill centre. So we've got Seedwell, Tiny Houses, um, Hammer Time, which is Melbourne's, like, only female-only carpentry workshop, so yeah. we teaming up with them this year too, um, and that gets quite a lot of support too. And yeah, it's a great. And then we've got um, animal studies as well. So it's a full-time eco skill centre. So we've got programs five days a week. So I coordinate and manage all that um, with a few great staff. Great. And then, yeah, we're looking at expanding it too this year. Mm.
1: And is that for the same group of people like youth at risk or is it open to the public as well?
2: Refugees or, um, yeah, refugees or young young at-risk people or um, underemployed Mm -hmm. people too. So to give them opportunities for um, skills pathways and job creation pathways as well, which is great. so all of that's a lot of the back-end work that goes on behind these projects so people can find um, employment pathways but also community and belonging too is a big part of the work we do here through ecological stewardship and we have a volunteer gardening day on Tuesdays where one of my friends, that's an amazing chef, comes in and cooks, cooks awesome lunches for the volunteers and mm. groups. So, yeah, it's really... Yeah, we're really fortunate to have such an amazing support and such amazing um, organisation behind us as well. Yeah, Mm. it's a great opportunity and it's only really going to grow from here, yeah.
1: Yeah. So what are some of your dreams for the future with it? Where would you like to go with it?
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, um, I've got a solar panel system costed for the roof, but we're going to put that back into the um, energy grid for city of moorland but when the R&D technology comes out put that in as affordable electricity so below market rate so for people on a pension or low income card they can access affordable electricity oh. for their house <clears throat> so that's incredible to work on that project and then doing like a biogas demonstration model so that's turning waste into to buy it to biogas, so waste food or garden waste, mm. and then we grow mushrooms on the substrate that comes out of the bottom of that, Great. and then hopefully put an algae pond on the CO2 exhaust to make um, either biodiesel or seaweed for freshwater crayfish, so wow. that's what I want to get started with, and we're really cranking up the mushroom enterprise here this year with the young people, so that's really exciting. Can you tell really us um, I
1: will
2: oyster. get you started on that. You said yeah, don't get you started, but I'm at the in Yeah, so oyster mushrooms, which are incredible. So they um, dismantle toxins in the soil um, or mine them, and then, but you can if you don't grow them on it. You know, we we grow them on coffee grounds and waste well, coffee grounds and paper. So we had a hundred kilograms of coffee grounds dropped off here this morning by local cafes to grow mushrooms on so i'm like oh yeah. that's about a of oyster mushrooms we can grow on that great and then um create an income for the young people through that by selling those mushrooms onto cafes and in local restaurants that are really keen
1: mm.
2: um so that's part of that's the enterprise side of it but then we also want to grow lion's mane which is really great for the brain and um neurogenesis so fixing up short-term memory loss, and um, it's an amazing mushroom to eat. It looks like a white lion's mane, mm. um, but when you cut it, it's looks like a cauliflower, but when you eat it, it tastes like crayfish, so wow, it's you know, vegan-friendly crayfish, so we plan to take Melbourne by storm with that one. So, <laughs> right. Yeah, um, yeah, We yes, looking to invest into a uh, mush, big commercial mushroom grow room here too, so yeah, and create, that connection to the immune system of nature through mushrooms and mm-hmm. my son growing and learn how to team with that um that web of life that underpins all ecosystems so it's an incredible way we fortify our veggie production here is with the mushroom compost so it's just been extraordinary to be on that journey for a year and see how far the vegetable production's gone like it's just gone From, you know, five kilos a week of vegetables, we've gone to 67 kilos of vegetables a week in summer, which is like everybody's complaining there's just too much harvesting to do. (laughs) It's a good thing to complain about. So (laughs) it's just extraordinary to see when you team with that biology in the soil and the mycelium to Mm. take it where it's needed. It really brings everything alive. So there's, you know, that aspect of it. And then, you know, there's... A whole array of eastern medicinal mushrooms to fortify immune responses to cold and flu. So, and that's been heavily researched academically in Japan, and now it's really starting to cotton on in Western medicine too. Yeah. So, there's a lot more peer-reviewed science around to back it up than there was even two or three years ago. But it, largely, it's a neglected macro science. So. Yeah. I can teach people at a very entry level or low capacity for learning too. It might be that um, so I do it a, a soft entry point for people that might not have been to school for five, 10, 20 years or might be illiterate. trips. Yeah. Growing mushrooms and that builds up their capacity and confidence in their learning skills. So mm-hmm. that's what, um, And doing these, using this amazing enterprise as a vehicle for that to happen. So we'll be doing that course here in Brunswick and also at the St Kilda site. Amazing. Right. Yeah.
1: Very integrated everything.
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's very, yeah, it's an inspiring part to be on. It's really amazing to have that governance support for my vision for this site and for for St Kilda too, and it's a lot in line with the executive management. Like they're like, that's great. Why haven't we thought of that? Like, yeah. yeah. You have to come Because you crazy. didn't
1: have Bill Mullison yeah. as a grandfather. No, that's no, why they no, didn't no, think
2: terrible. of it. Yeah, bring him, so it might have something to do with yeah. that. It's like, what if we did this? So, and then you know, you get that element working, you move on to the the next, and you have it. So, so, so it supports a greater vision and outcome. Doesn't detract from the energy going into that system. It builds it up. So, it's quite, um, yeah, an amazing place to be in, to be on these ecological justice frontier, oh. which is very good for state government. So, um, I was in a state government consultation a few weeks ago with a few environmental lawyers and I like going so guys tell us what environmental justice is and I'm like you don't have an environmental justice policy and I'm like like, oh my goodness Uh so I was just going back to basics and with them and then then that'll be disseminated from once they've got that right which their vision for it was very um, pessimistic we like we can do much much better if we look at Scandinavian models, so, yeah, it's really interesting to work at that very high level and the very, you know, margins of society and kind of be that conduit between mm.
1: yes. it. Yeah,
2: a- Looking at already amazing solutions in practice in, in Melbourne instead of trying to, to reinvent the wheel. So, yeah, it's an incredible, um, incredible journey to be a part of at the moment.
1: Mm. Sounds amazing. It sounds like so positive for... But- so many positive outcome for so many people.
2: Yeah, and it's, it's like that, it, it, it is hard work on some days. Mm. Like, it's very difficult some days, but it's very rewarding. Yeah. yeah. And it, you just got to remind yourself to remember the journey as much as the outcome too. I think yeah. that's a big part of it, yeah.
1: And aside from um, the work you're doing with Seedwell, you're often overseas doing... Different things. You're in Nepal recently, is that right?
2: Yeah, so I was over there for a couple of weeks working with the Nepalese government and SAPROS, which are a big um, non-government organisation. But they're one of, the, they would be probably the largest non-profit for working in Nepal from a Nepalese background. So not an international NGO like Red Cross. Okay. Um, so I was bringing, yeah, I was researching a lot of permaculture projects while over there, and the Absolutely incredible. So yeah, incredible individuals running those projects and amazing outcomes with no support from from government or international funds as well. So it's really good to kind of shake the apple cart a bit to right. show, look, this is what you can do. If you just, just work from the right basis of permaculture instead of being dependent on a handout or a grant right.
1: So what were yeah. some of those
2: projects that you... So asked? one of them was done by Zach and his wife in East Nepal. That was with the um, Almost seven Farms and the foundation that supports that from Canada, but they're going to a full social enterprise model. So they've rebuilt two orphanages after the 2015 earthquake and also they grow a lot of tea, so it's like in... The East Himalayan Mountains, just incredibly beautiful, just hills that go on for days.
1: Mm.
2: Um, yeah, incredibly, incredibly wet. So they do. They train about six hundred and fifty farmers and visitors there a year. So, wow, that's a lot. um Incredible work. Like I've never seen projects that tick all of the boxes, like health and nutrition, female health and nutrition, education at all levels, literacy. Um, economically self-sufficient off the produce they grow off the farm. They can support all the workers, all the children, feed all all the children in, in the children's homes. So um,
1: mm-hmm. amazing
2: organisation. And then, yeah, very, very um, inspiring definitely and having all those social impacts and outcomes, environmental impacts and outcomes and economic impacts and outcomes because it was a very structured, layered system, mm. so that that gave me a lot of hope for, you know, if they can do so much with so little, you know, we can do a, a lot more than what we're doing in Melbourne if we can just inspire people with those solutions as well, I think. So that's, that's what kind of drives my ambition and inspiration is seeing those projects internationally. Uh, Um, Also in West Nepal, there was a Himalayan Permaculture Centre. So they work with um, hundreds of farmers and um, they've got this amazing program called Barefoot Consultants where they train them up in over 40 different health, food and nutrition and social programs and natural earth building and, and water security and they live with developing communities for two years and help them through their day-to-day issues. So it's not that drive-in, drive-out NGO kind of international aid model, which Mm. is very, very, very frustrating for me. Um, So yeah, it was an amazing honour to be able to teach them for a day or two about water security and water harvesting and what they could do with their existing technologies as well. Because they've got a two, like it's been made a lot worse by climate change. They've got a three-month wet season and a nine-month dry season. Right, okay. So, yeah, it's quite, um, quite a, and it's becoming quite a harder dry season as well and a more intense wet season, so their infrastructure really isn't up for the challenge. So there's a lot of lot of great work there to do, but there's always a lot, lot more work there to do mm. and, I'm just getting a lot of surveys and assessments done by the UN um, Food and Health Organization too. So it's starting to come up on international radars because what happened in the 2015 earthquake, they were the only organisation in Red Cross, in not, they were the only organisation in Nepal that didn't get blocked at the airports because they were already there set up. So no. they were helping people immediately after the earthquakes. but. What the old Nepalese government did, they blocked aid going into Nepal for up to a month. So people were without support from the Red Cross who wanted to help, but couldn't get past the airport bureaucracy yeah. because they wanted to pay it off. So that that's just the reality of it. And then permaculture became these amazing models of resilience and help and they were completely unsupported and then started to get picked up by international organizations this amazing work so and then the resilience through recovery kind of project came out of that which was making earthquake affected communities more resilient to um, flooding earthquakes and, and drought too mm. so it was a good it was a powerful catalyst for bringing permaculture into the the limelight that's often taken up by the big NGOs is because of the resilience those communities had already established through permaculture oh. um, prior to the earthquake. So, you know, I think that, that was an amazing silver lining for me out of the earthquake, and, just, just, and it just, it's just made the contrast between the permaculture model for development and the NGO model for development that much more starker. Mm. 'Cause you know, NGOs like USA, they only work until the funding dries up or is cut, but permaculture that can go on, you know, forever. Um, or has gone on forever for up to thirty years in some of these communities. Mm. Um, yeah, because it's built around empowering people and education and values, not just around money.
1: Mm.
2: That's a critical difference in permaculture, is so that we build around that system of ethics and then also yeah, I'm teaching in Germany in a couple of weeks too, so doing a, a lecture and um, seminar tour there with the biodynamic and organic movement, so quite a lot right. at the moment. How yeah. do
1: you fit it all in?
2: <laughs> I don't know. I mean, still manage to get my eight hours of sleep, but just. Oh, that's good. <laughs> and I still can turn off my phone and, yeah. Yeah, so I have, yeah, good me time on the weekend and yeah. that's the only way. I don't burn out, I just got to say, no, I can't work this weekend. Or if I I take Monday off, that's the only way or else it just becomes too much. But I work with some incredible teams, amazing people. So that's the only reason I can do what seems like a lot. I just work with the most amazing individuals and Mm. they really inspire me and give me a lot of hope and keep me going. And, you know, we really support each other to do the best work we can and, pick each other up and we might fall into a bit of a slump too. So it's amazing. It's fundamental to the way I work to have the right right type of people around me to give me the right advice or point me in the right direction or say, mm. don't worry, shoot, I've got it. So they keep the projects going while I'm focusing on other things. So mm. that's, yeah, that's, that's the only reason I'm having that sense of community and support and belonging amongst my friends and my teammates is, um really what makes it all happen.
1: Yeah. Mm. yeah, and your amazing ability to take all have all that knowledge and then incorporate it into so many different things and tie them all together seamlessly.
2: Yeah, definitely. And um it's quite beautiful to talk about it in that way because then we're not talking about segregating stuff through programs or funding streams or mm. things too. We can talk about it too a greater human value system that speaks to us all, to our innate ability to be compassionate and humble and listen to each other and listen to concerns. And then if we do that from a humanistic base, I think we're on the right track to bringing the value system about that can deal with, you know, climate change or catastrophe at the brusse of a stroke because we know we've all got each other's backs and we know we're all here to support each other. So that's... Kind of the back message in what underpins these center, ecological skill centres, with Seedwell in St Kilda and, and Brunswick, is to be that that beacon of hope and belonging for young people that don't necessarily have a place to go to in society. So, mm. yeah, it's um, yeah we're still still developing that one line vision to kind of ascertain or boil all that down into one. Five-liner sentence. Oh, it's always
1: but, so hard yeah, we've to do. Got those all things, all, yeah. all
2: these programs kind of making the mycelium web of life together and evolving yeah. it at its own pace. But it's um, yeah, incredible to be a part of. And it's all it's all different pieces of the one puzzle. It's still working out what that puzzle looks like when those bits fit together and what picture that paints.
1: Mm.
2: But I think it's got something to do with ecological and social justice and a deep purpose of meaning in our day-to-day work and to feel supported and that we all belong. And I think that's something we all crave no matter what walk of life we're from. Mm. And I think it's something we all need to to be the best version of ourselves. So I think that's how all of my projects kind of lock together and that's how I kind of keep, keep them on the single stream and and focus towards that vision yeah yeah
1: yeah and being able to i mean you've got all these great people around you supporting you but also being able to manage them all and inspire them which sounds like you were starting to learn when you were 16
2: yeah on yeah, the definitely. Farm, so. yeah definitely it's just like let's do this like uh. <laughs>
1: <laughs> make it happen
2: public talk in public so i talked um at my first permaculture design course with bill when I was 14, so I was pretty, okay. and I was just like, what am I doing here? <laughs> so yeah, pretty incredible, so I was forced into, I was a very shy kid, yeah. so it forced me to be very confident talking in public at a very young age, yeah. so it's something, um, it's, a, it's not necessary, yeah, it's a, a great asset to me to be able to articulate those ideas and that's something Bill was incredible at mm. and I think Undercredited for was articulating the core essence of a problem and a solution, yeah. Which was, I think, a big part of his genius was having that precise articulation or thread of words to distill the very essence of something, of a problem, of a situation, of a context. Of you mm. like, no, that's not the question you're asking. The question you're really asking is this, and people go, "My goodness, that's right." Yeah. Yeah. So his ability to to steal ideas into a high level of synthesis like around going from we need a, the biggest change we need to make is going from a society of consumption to one of production like right. that just sums it up we all become producers yeah that sums up the value system we need to change so
1: well it yeah. sounds like you're working hard towards that
2: yeah definitely yeah
1: All right, well, thanks a lot for chatting with me today and sharing your story. It's really interesting to hear and very inspiring.
2: Yeah, thank you for the opportunity, Robin. Really appreciate it. No worries, and
0: keep up the good work. Thanks for tuning in to the Pip Permaculture Podcast. For more information about Pip Magazine or to subscribe, visit www.pipmagazine.com.au. Stay tuned for more thought-provoking podcasts via our SoundCloud or sign up for our free Pip Fortnightly Guide delivered direct to your inbox.